Tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections on this crucial movement of the heart on this path and in this practice called going for refuge. In particular, going for refuge in the, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And today feels like such an auspicious day for that. You know, it's our Uposada day. It's a full moon day. A day often when practitioners can recommit, reconnect to these refuges, to this path and this practice. So these reflections are going to be around uh, what is going for refuge? And in particular, how does it fit into engaging, fit into what we're engaging uh, with on this retreat? So to make it practical and intertwine it with uh, this retreat of yours, whether it be six weeks or three months. And then after that, uh, if there's time, I, I might offer just a few reflections on navigating the practice meetings. Annie gave us a little bit of uh, details about how to, to engage in the practice meetings, but if there's time, I want to offer you a few more reflections that, that you might find helpful. And before I I get into sharing with you these reflections, I want to say a few words about listening to a Dhamma talk. Uh, Because what I've found over the years is that that is a practice in and of itself. There's a a kind of approach that I found helpful to keep in mind when I'm listening to, to a Dhamma talk. And first and foremost, I think what's important is to to remember that when you listen, it's, it's just important to get a sense of what resonates for you. What are you finding useful? And to utilize that. And then the aspects of the talk that you don't find useful, that, you, that don't resonate for you, just to set aside. So this practice of really doing that, of like, oh, this really is resonating for me. This is something that, that will be carried forward in my practice. And all these other things, ah, just to set them aside. And also what I've noticed is that what resonates for me in a Dhamma talk is not always the things I like. So sometimes the things that resonate for me are maybe the parts of the Dhamma talk that I don't like, yet are, are really important for me to hear. And it can be vice versa too. Sometimes I like something in a, in a Dhamma talk, but it's really not uh, really useful or resonating. So I want to distinguish that it's not just mere liking or not liking, but something d- deeper that I'm sure you have an intuitive sense of. Also, uh, in terms of listening, I want to acknowledge, you know, when I share with you the Dhamma, it, it's coming, really, I'm speaking from a, a certain set of conditions when I'm, I'm speaking about, about uh, this path and this practice. And some of it you could say is more in the personal dimension, you know, my, my love of this tradition, but also practicing in the Zen tradition and the Tibetan tradition. Or these many other, you know, innumerable conditions of my personal life, growing up in a, an Irish Catholic family, you know, where there's a value of liberation theology or my own personal struggles and challenges in my life and on this path. 
Of course, the list goes on around these conditions. Or the societal conditioning that I'm still navigating and, and, and doing this practice for the heart to become free of, whether it be you know, that I, I grew up in the United States. My first language is English. I'm white. I'm a man. Right? I'm a heterosexual. And these, these also play into you know, how the Dhamma comes out when I share with you. And again, these similarities and differences that we might have together really might resonate for you. And other times they might not. So I just want to normalize that. And other times you just might be hearing my plain old limitations of my understanding of the Dhamma. And so to take that into account too as you're listening. That it might just be my imperfections rather than my wise reflections that come out. So back to this theme, what, what is going for refuge? What is this movement of the heart? You know, we have these Pali words that, that we chant on these, that we'll be chanting on these Aposada days. Uh, Budang saranang gachami. The, those two words, saranam, which is uh, often translated as refuge or a shelter, that which protects. And gachami comes from uh, uh, the verb to go or to be in motion. And so for me, that movement, that motion of going for refuge, it's, it's the feeling of a reorientation in my life. It's a reorientation in my practice where I'm, I'm reorienting away from the false refuges that my mind so loves to go to again and again, those habitual false refuges that my mind gravitates towards. And instead, making that reorientation to the true refuge. It's really embodied by these notions of the, the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. And maybe even at this point in the retreat, maybe you've noticed the false refuges your mind habitually goes to. You notice any of them? Right. Maybe it's the false refuge. I know I've experienced worry. It's like I sit down, start to come to my anchor, and it's like, oh, this is the place to hang out. Worry. <laughs> Worried about how people will see me when I'm sitting. Worried about how people will see me when I'm doing the walking meditation. How I am in the dining hall. Maybe I should rest in worrying about it. Maybe you can relate to this. And it feels like it, the mind, it's like the mind believes that there may be some safety if I worry just enough about this, I'll figure out the right way to be in the world. Or judgment. Man, if I just judge myself enough, then I'll get in line. And I know that isn't such a good refuge, but, but there it is. There's the mind and the heart trying to find solace and judging or judging others. If I'm not satisfied with judging myself, then it's judging others. Or maybe you might have noticed that the mind, it seeks refuge in distraction or in obsessing about food 
or some crazy story about yourself, like that fundamental feeling that something's wrong with me, that seems to to fuel my practice in, in ways that just doesn't help. Yeah, pick your favorite to notice this. Oh, the false refuges of this heart and mind. And it's this reorientation. You'd say the retreat is just about that reorienting to the true refuge, to a real refuge. This movement of the heart in this way. And when I reflect on this and I reflect on all these years that I've practiced, I, I think maybe the most significant thing about my spiritual path hasn't been some kind of amazing spiritual experience. It's more been the process of reorienting. Moment after moment, day after day, retreat after retreat. This reorientation is the thing that's been so incredibly transformative that's allowed me to be in the world in a different way that's really led to to these to this to more and more freedom in my life so this significant reorientation and what i want to point out as i go through these these different refuges is that it's significant but subtle the image that I get from one of my teachers around this that I find so helpful is it's like the movement of a rudder on a boat. You know, it's such a small movement that can happen on the rudder of a boat. Yet if you were to imagine, here we are, maybe we're in one of those, uh, just, just in the ocean there, right off where Boston is there. And to, to imagine just a small turn of the rudder in a boat could make a radical difference where we end up. Right? We could be in Europe. We could end up in Europe on the coast of France or in a different turn of the rudder. We could be all the way down in Africa on the, on the coast of Senegal. So it's a very small reorientation, a small movement but so significant in terms of where we end up in our lives. Uh, This is going for refuge. This is the reorientation, the small shift in the rudder to allow for something different in our lives, different in the sense of freedom in our lives. And you see this in the discourses, you know, sometimes you see an individual listening to the the Buddha give a a discourse or to share words of the Dhamma, and there's this movement of the heart and the way they express it when they feel that reorientation in the heart as they go for refuge. Oh, oh, I go for refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. In Flagstaff, Arizona, where I live at the Towards the beginning of the year, each year, we have a going for refuge ceremony to give an outward expression of this reorientation of the heart. So beautiful, you know, coming together as community, chanting, you know, of course, eating good food, which is always a good part of ceremonies, (laughs) dedicating ourselves to this path. 
And when that memory of these ceremonies came to mind, I thought to myself, oh, maybe this is what this retreat is about. Just, just a ceremony, a six-week ceremony, a three-month ceremony to simply reorient your heart in a different direction. Just that, nothing more, yet so profound. And we can hear the, the, the Buddha in the, for example, in the Dhammapada speak to this movement of the heart from a false refuge to a true refuge, that, that change in the, in the rudder that can, can uh, land us in such a different place in our lives. He says, they go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge. That's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering. But when, having gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, you see with wise attention the four noble truths, suffering or dukkha, the cause of dukkha or suffering, the transcending of dukkha, and the noble eightfold path, the way to the stilling of dukkha, that's the secure refuge, that the highest refuge, that is the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering. The turn from the false refuges to the true refuge. So again, going for refuge in the the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, this movement of the heart, this reorientation. Just like the subtle shift of a rudder can radically change our lives, right? We can end up on the coast of France and Europe or all the way down in Senegal on the coast of Africa. So going for refuge in the the Buddha, how do we understand that? I get a sense that that might be relevant for what you're doing here on retreat. Going for refuge in the Buddha. Not not so much, I think, in the person, the historical person, but rather in the possibility of awakening that he embodied through his life. And to feel that potential within yourself, to feel that potential within us. You know, this is something that Don spoke about last night and the importance of this. To claim, to claim our potential for awakening, for freedom. I think uh, the, the author, Annie Dillard, speaks to this in a very interesting way. You know, in, in her book, Holy the Firm, I feel like she's 
pondering this. She's using language that is more in a Christian context. But I think uh, it speaks to this dynamic of the importance of this confidence and the difficulty of it. So she asked this question, again, using more Christian language, but I think we can translate it into this path. She asks, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? There is no one but us. There is no one to send, nor a clean hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, nor in the earth. Only us. A generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent fathers are all dead, as if innocence had ever been. But there is no one but us. There never has been. Do you hear what she's pointing to? Right? We, we can hold this notion that somehow we're flawed or imperfect in such a way that freedom really isn't possible. Well, maybe I'll get a little benefit from being on retreat. But really, I know deep down that I'm just flawed or I'm so imperfect or I've had so many challenges in my life that freedom really isn't possible for me. Awakening is for those monastics or for those people practicing in Asia. As if they're the ones with the pure heart or the perfection already. Have you ever noticed such thoughts of how we situate ourselves in relationship to this path? Really, though, there's no one but us. Us finding ourselves in this human predicament of suffering. Can you turn the rudder? Can you reorient your practice towards freedom, towards awakening? towards the potential that's in your heart for freedom. This this is part of taking refuge in the Buddha. To turn that rudder just a little bit to land in, wow, this is possible for this being here. Oh, can I start to rest in having confidence in the potential of this heart. Such a small shift, so significant. And of course, I want to acknowledge, at least for me, it's not been an easy thing to land. It's something that I've had to come back to again and again. It's been a whole process for me. You know, I've had to navigate a mind that likes to hide out in the idea that I'm too flawed for freedom. 
It likes to hide out in the idea that I'm too broken for any real transformation. That idea that in essence, I'm no good. And this demands something different of me. It demands stopping hiding in such small refuges to see that really there's no one but us. And yes, it's a process. It takes kindness. It takes self-compassion for the heart to soften and settle in its true potential. Or sometimes said, it's true birthright when mixed with this practice and this path. Can you begin to turn the rudder, reorient the heart on this retreat? So another facet of taking refuge in the the Buddha, a story about this. This comes from the, actually a sutta, the the Dona Sutta. So once upon a time, there was a Brahmin by the name of Dona. And Dona, Dona was traveling on this road between these two villages And it so happened on this day that he was traveling on this road between these two villages. The Buddha was also traveling ahead of him. And he was moved by just how the Buddha was was, uh, comporting himself, just holding himself, walking along the road. And not only that, when Dona looked down on the road, he saw the footprints of the Buddha. And in the footprints of the Buddha was this Dhamma wheel, this wheel that had a thousand spokes. Such an amazing thing to see. Someone walk in the world differently. This is what happened. Dona was so deeply moved by seeing this being walk in the world in a radically different way. Seeing this being touch the world leave an imprint on the world in such a radically different way. So deeply moving. So Donna, Donna thought to himself, man, I, I got to find out who this is. And so he followed the Buddha and the Buddha had gone into the forest and had started to sit at the foot of a tree. And he went up to the Buddha and it, and he said something, at least the way I imagine it. Venerable sir, what's up with the footprints? Man. (laughs) Okay, so that's a loose translation of the Pali. (laughs) I've never seen anybody with such footprints. Never seen anybody walk in the world in this way. Please tell me, are, are you some kind of deva? And the Buddha said, no. Or are you a Gandaba or a Yaka, which are different kinds of, you could say, celestial beings or deities. 
And the Buddha said, no. Well, what about a human being? And the Buddha said, no. And Dona said, well, what are you then? And the Buddha said, I am awake. He said, like a blue lotus rising up unsmeared by water and smeared am I by the world. And so, Brahman, I'm awake. Living in the world, but not tangled by the world. What would it be like on this retreat to have just that as your refuge? Just to be awake to your experience. Just that. Maybe it's just the simplicity of your experience right now, the feeling of the breath or the sound of my voice coming and going. To rest there, to abide there. And when you rest there, you might even feel right now how that's a true refuge. So different than the other refuges, those false refuges. Just making that slight shift of the rudder into wakefulness, into being awake. So maybe this too is a way to understand what it is to take refuge in the Buddha. So how can we understand what it really is to take refuge in being awake? And in order to, to kind of offer some reflections on this, I, I, I think the taking refuge in the Dhamma is a way to understand this, to give a further elucidation of what it is to take refuge in being awake. So now, in order to help maybe answer that question, what is it to take refuge in the Dhamma? And again, a a passage where the Buddha directly speaks to this notion of taking refuge in the Dhamma. And I'm going to share with you an interchange. This comes from the the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. An interchange that takes place between uh, the Buddha and Ananda. And it it happened, um, they had uh, just entered into Rain's retreat near a a village, uh, 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 Valavu village. And at this point in time, the Buddha was was quite old, you know, and things were falling apart for him. As he says, actually uh, around this interchange, he says to Ananda, he says, I am now aged Ananda, old, elderly, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 80 years old. Just as an old cart is kept going with the help of bamboo strips, the Tathagata's body is kept going with the help of bamboo strips, as it were. So 
So here's the Buddha at this stage of life, and not only is it this stage of life, but it's just right before this that he becomes severely sick. Severely sick in a way that Ananda's worried. And one of Ananda's worries is is about the Sangha of practitioners, of monastics, how to carry on once the Buddha dies. And so this question is in the air and they're having this interchange. And this is what the Buddha says to Ananda. He says, therefore, Ananda, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge with the Dhamma as your island, the Dhamma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. And how Ananda is a practitioner, an island unto themselves, a refuge unto themselves, seeking no external refuge with the Dhamma as their island, the Dhamma as their refuge, seeking no other refuge. So here we have this question, how can we take refuge in the Dhamma? What is this? What does this mean? And then the Buddha answers this. He says, when a practitioner dwells contemplating the body in the body, earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindfully, and after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, when a practitioner dwells contemplating feelings and feelings, when they dwell contemplating the mind and the mind, mental objects as mental objects, earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindfully, after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, then truly that practitioner is an island unto themselves, a refuge unto themselves, seeking no external refuge, having the Dhamma as their island, the Dhamma as their refuge, seeking no other refuge. So what is the the Buddha speaking to right here. This is the four foundations of mindfulness that, that Annie briefly spoke about and then Guy started to get us into just a little bit when he was talking about the mindfulness of breathing. These different, you could say, ways of establishing mindfulness or different areas that we're mindful of. So to keep it very simple, it's a reorientation of being awake to our experience of being mindful to our experience. Or as Guy pointed out to us in his talk, knowing our experience, right? that Pali word, pajanati, you know, the, the last part of the word, jhanati, to know, the pa, to know fully, to know clearly, experience. Whether it be to fully know the breath, the feeling of the breath, mindful of the breath. To fully know a thought is just a thought or an emotion is just emotion. motion. 
So what does this slight turning of the rudder look like, this being awake, this being mindful? What does that movement look like of the heart? For example, you come into the meditation hall, sitting in meditation, have the intention to be with an anchor, and if your mind's like mine, swish, there the the mind is lost. (laughs) Voila. It's lost in planning or worrying or sleepiness. Let's take planning. There it is, planning. Planning what you're going to say to a friend after the retreat, even though the retreat has just begun. (laughs) Planning what you're going to do after dinner or before breakfast. Or planning the entire next stage of your life. There it is. And then there's that mysterious turn of the rudder, isn't it? It's just that moment I find so fascinating where all of a sudden you're back. Oh wow, mindfulness appears. There it is. There's the turn of the rudder, the reorientation of the heart. And then there's the recognizing Oh, thinking, planning. Oh, interesting, there's an emotion there. Oh, worry. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, worry. Oh, and it's unpleasant. Oh, unpleasant. Oh, not liking. There's mindfulness. And all of these different domains, a mind state like worry, Feeling tone, Vedana, which we'll get to. Oh, unpleasant. These different foundations there. These different ways that we can be mindful. And then coming back to some anchor, like the breathing. Oh, there's the first foundation of mindfulness. And yes, right now, we're, we are slowing it down. We're, we're giving you instructions in the morning, just mostly right now so far, just about tar- beginning to, to make that connection with an anchor, both in your sitting meditation and walking meditation. And over time, we'll be going over, we'll broaden this, this practice of mindfulness into these other domains, and mostly doing that, especially in the mornings, to give you specific instructions. But it's still just that simple turn. It's just a simple turn of being awake to your experience. Can you reorient your life towards that true refuge? Just the turning of the rudder from being lost to being awake. This is the reorienting that brings freedom. And I want to point out, for me... What I'm aspiring to is just moments of this. Have you noticed how messy it can be? Or is that just my meditation? (laughs) You have such a great intention of being present. And then five minutes of your sitting meditation, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 28 minutes, lost in thought. (laughs) Oh, but then there's the moment, right? There's the moment of turning the rudder. where Then you're awake to your experience. That's an important moment. There it is. Can you be okay with just moments in the midst of the mess? That's the way it is. The mind is so complex and it can be so chaotic. 
moments of tasting the true refuge and noticing that, savoring that. When the heart wakes up to what's going on. So this taking refuge in the Dhamma, this this technology of how to be awake. Taking refuge now in the Sangha. What, what is it to take refuge in the Sangha in terms of this reorientation, this the small turn of the rudder that brings our lives in such a radically different direction over time? So traditionally, taking refuge in the Sangha is, is taking refuge in the monastic community, in the, the community of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. It can also refer to what's called the Arya Sangha. The Arya Sangha being those who have reached you know, some stage of freedom or awakening. So I think that's one way to understand taking refuge in the Sangha, kind of a traditional way. And tonight I'm, I'm going to take a little bit different tactic to, to offer more of a, a, a modern sense of this word, Sangha that might make it relevant, more relevant on this retreat of yours. And for me, Sangha becomes relevant when, when I see it also to mean the community within which I'm practicing in, like our community, our Sangha here. And what I remind myself of is that in terms of this path, I can't do it alone. And at the same time, no one can tread this path for me. And both are true. It's true. I can't do this alone. And at the same time, no one can tread this path for me. I awaken, I come to freedom with the support of community with my involvement in community, even on a silent retreat. It's true, you know, we have this time alone on this retreat and we're engaged in this together. And there's a power to our togetherness that I think sometimes we can underestimate. There's a power to it, a potency to it. Through the coming together we come to freedom. The image that sometimes comes to mind is uh, comes from the study that I heard about that was done in uh, was done in Bosnia after after the war, and they were looking at different modalities to to address uh, a, a lot of the trauma that had happened during that war. And so they were looking at you know different interventions like. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, or other approaches to healing trauma. And do you know what they found to be the most effective? The women's knitting circle. Striking, don't you think? But for me, so touching, the image of women coming together and knitting and weaving their lives back together.
And I think we do that through our like intention. We weave our lives back together in a way that brings healing and freedom to each other. And it could just be the simple commitment that we have with each other of being on retreat, of being in retreat together and following that commitment. I know it's helped me so much. I remember, you know, when I was a monk in the Zen tradition, you know, we were getting up at, we were going to bed usually around 9.30 at night and then getting up at 3 a.m. And there's no way ever in my life that I've gotten up on 3 a.m. on my own. <laughs> I just don't have that discipline. Yet being in a community, I was inspired to do that. It was that, that, that being in community that carried my life forward. Or you might notice, just being on retreat, the presence of each other reminds you to be mindful, reminds you to be kind. We're weaving our lives back together in this way as we, we stitch our way through this path and this practice. Or I think there's a, a broader way of understanding sangha or community, which can intertwine with our aspiration of how we hold our practice. You know, to practice not only for oneself, but for others as well. As the, the Buddha points out in the, the Firebrand Sutta and the numerical discourses, he says, you know, the, the individual who practices not only for their own be- benefit, but also for the benefit of others, is the foremost practitioner, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. To practice, yes, for yourself, but for others as well. And of course, we see this flower later on in Buddhism as it takes form in the form of bodhicitta, which Annie you know, spoke to in her first talk. And for me, it's, it's, not, it's just a small turn in the rudder to practice for myself and others. It's actually just the acknowledgement of the fact that we don't live our lives in a vacuum. You know, how we live our lives impacts others. It impacts the communities that you live in. It impacts the world that you live in. There's no way around it. That's the interdependent nature of this world that we live in. And the practice for oneself and others is just an acknowledgement of that, a claiming of the way things are. And it can happen in the simplest of ways. You know, usually every year when I come to teach one of the parts of the three-month retreat and I tell someone that it inspires them, it inspires people who haven't been on the three-month retreat before or people who have been on the three-month retreat. Sometimes they tell me in the fall they feel their practice buoyed knowing that people are sitting. What you're doing here is impacting communities and individuals and people. Or just the other day I was in Worcester and I was trying to explain to someone who has never meditated before what I'm doing here and all these people. He was so moved by it. It was so touching to see that. 
You're impacting the world. And is there a way that you can acknowledge that in your practice? Just the small turn of the rudder to reorient your heart. It's made such a a big difference in my practice. And I think, again, Annie mentioned this, but I want to re-mention it. It can be as simple as when you begin a sitting meditation or maybe something that you just do in the beginning of your day or at the end of each sit. To have this quality of heart of may this go for the benefit of all beings. It allows what you're doing here to be this humble yet significant offering to this troubled world that we live in. Just that small intention has been so helpful. It's helped me step out of this kind of cocoon of my self-centeredness into the broader world that I actually live in to get a real taste of what this path and this practice is like, is about. So again, that small turn of the rudder, placing that intention, that aspiration, that may this go for the benefit of all beings, to practice for oneself and for others. And it could be around simple practical things, even like what Jill was mentioning this morning around generosity. You know, the this feeling of that you can be giving your non-harming to this community. That's what you're doing through your sila. Providing this space, this field of non-harming to your fellow yogis. That's a big thing. That's a huge thing to offer one another. Can you imagine living in a town or a city or a community where everybody committed just to the five precepts? That would be radical, right? Probably whole economic institutions would have to change, but (laughs) it would be amazing. And sometimes when I have this feeling that what it is to be on retreat is more an offering, a giving, than a getting, then each each day of my retreat's a good day because I've offered my practice. I don't have to worry what I get out of retreat if the intention is more to give than to get. So taking refuge, taking refuge in the, the Buddha, your, your potential for awakening. Taking refuge in the Buddha in the sense of that small turn into wakefulness and how in the Dhamma it's this placing of mindfulness. And taking refuge in the Sangha, our community here, and also possibly, if it fits for you, this aspiration to practice yes for oneself and yes for others. I do want to now switch gears and just take a few minutes to say a few more things about the practice meetings, just because... It's something that can rattle our practice and also support our practice. But I want to talk a little bit more about how to, 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 uh, to navigate that and some possible ideas that you might want to reflect on. Because they can be um, 
at least for me, sometimes they've been confusing or nerve-wracking, the whole, the whole thing of having to go into a practice meeting. For example, I remember my first uh, practice meeting with uh, this uh, famous teacher, um, Saida Upandita, who's influenced the practice here quite a bit. And the first uh, practice meeting I had, it was actually in San Jose at the Tathagata Meditation Center. I walked in, and as I was doing my bows uh, to him of respect, he got up and started opening and closing windows and continued to open and close windows as I shared with him what was going on in my practice. (laughs) So my hope is that your practice meeting teacher doesn't do that to you, but you never know. (laughs) But it was... uh, because I remember being so stunned and then the interpreter saying, yeah, please, please go on, just, just share what you need to report. So hopefully it's not that nerve-wracking, at least that was nerve-wracking for me. But it, it can be helpful to um, see the practice meeting, and there's many different intentions. One is, is just to, to have this practice of describing how you're engaging in the meditation, which probably some of you have already done in your, and so maybe in your practice discussion. You know, the kind of anchor you're using in the walking meditation and the sitting meditation, the how of what you're doing. And also to, to practice describing what you're noticing in your meditation. Oh, the, the breath feels like this. It's pleasant. It's unpleasant. Oh, I can really feel the beginning, middle, and end. Oh, interesting. It feels bumpy or tight. Whatever you're noticing, that could be just around the breath. It could be different things that are arising, an emotion or a thought, and how, how the mind's relating to it. Within those descriptions, though, also, you might, what I encourage you to do, for some of you, this is what I found really helpful, is to make sure to describe something that's going well in your retreat. This has been such an important practice for me because my mind is so good at telling you what's going wrong and what I'm having a hard time with, and how I can't do it. And it's been really important to notice what's going well. Can you share a sitting that's going, that went well, or a walking meditation that went well? However that word well, whatever that means for you. Maybe it was a a sit that was, there was a lot of calmness or steadiness. Or sometimes a sit that went really well for me is when I had this huge storm of anger and there was, there was a lot of kind of sensations coursing through the body and yet there was mindfulness. Or I remembered to, to bring in self-compassion even though it was super challenging. So to broaden maybe your sense of what well means. And then maybe to describe a challenge that you're going through. Yeah, where's the edge for you of your practice? And of course, if you have any questions or you're having a particular hard time with something. And it does help if you feel comfortable enough enough with us to to be open and honest because that's where we can support you. The reason I name these things around the practice discussions is that when I get involved in, in describing kind of these things, how I'm practicing, maybe what, what I'm experiencing in terms of what I'm noticing with mindfulness, but also what's going well and maybe where the challenge is, is that it's been so empowering for me as a practitioner because a lot of what I learned is just through de- learning how to describe my practice. 
is where I gain so much. Not so much from what the teacher says. I mean, I hope we say things that are helpful. (laughs) You never know. But I offer this to you because there can be something really helpful about that. For example, when I was uh, doing practice discussions with Saito Upandita, sometimes he wouldn't say anything. And really my learning was from needing to share with him about my, my practice. So I just encourage you to, to find that empowerment for yourself. And yes, hopefully support from, from the teachers as well. And yeah, it, it can be helpful to reflect just a little bit, the words that are so essential, little bit for your practice discussion, to, get, to reflect a little bit of what you'd like to share. And I, I want to point out that preparing a little bit is different than obsessing, chronic planning. I name it because my mind has been so good about obsessing or planning around a practice meeting. To keep it simple, but to maybe reflect on some of these things that I mentioned. And if you find your mind obsessing, or worrying, can you fold that into your practice? Oh, this too is the practice. Oh, there it is, worry. Oh, and there's how the mind's relating to that worry. Oh, it's not liking it, interesting. Oh, there's mindfulness. I'm just noticing what's going on in the mind. I'm noticing the sensations in the body. This is my, what I call my pre-practice meeting practice. <laughs> so important. Just an encouragement to make that into your practice. And then also for me, and I'm hoping your mind is not as neurotic as my mind at times, but it might be, so this is why I'm sharing it with you, is also my uh, post-practice meeting practice. (laughs) Damn it, I can't believe I said that. I feel like such a fool. (laughs) I feel so embarrassed. It wasn't even making sense. Oh my God, what are they thinking of me? I wonder what they were writing down in that (laughs) note when I was saying that. Maybe you don't have the same thoughts. I know I have those thoughts. I've had those thoughts before. Oh, interesting. There it is again. Worry. Oh, fear. Oh, interesting. It feels like this. Oh, and of course, around worry in this mind is like, wow, I so don't want to feel worry. Oh, There's worry, and then there's how the mind's relating to that worry. Can you make that into your practice around the practice meetings? So the entirety of this around the practice meetings. So again, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And may you especially take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha around your practice meetings. <laughs> and may it go for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for a, a few moments here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.